We are in the third week of a series of messages called Love, Sex, and Culture. And if you remember, in the first week, we talked about the issues of sex and sexuality. We looked at what Jesus had to say in the Sermon on the Mount about pornea and issues of lust and how we are to use our body, because our body is whose? It's God's. And then last week, Pastor Steve did an outstanding job of talking to some of the cultural sea changes that have happened in the last 10 to uh, 20 years. Really, in the last five years, how significantly some sea changes have happened culturally as it relates to sex and sexuality. And so he laid those out for us and began to talk to us about how to begin to respond to those things. Now, if you remember, I want to pick up right where he left off, because if you remember, Pastor Steve, in his final point, said, God has not called us as Christians to be fighters, to fight with people, but God has called us to be reconcilers, to do the best we can do to reconcile ourselves to God and reconcile the lives of others to God. Now, one of the things that becomes clear as you read the Gospels is that Jesus expects that as a result of his teaching and as a result of his preaching, there is going to be some sort of life change. There is going to be a response. If you look at the teaching of Jesus Christ, you'll see that he preaches with a sense of authority and a sense of expectation. In fact, people were in awe of him. They said, this man does not teach like the other teachers of the law. He teaches as one with authority. Authority. Everybody say the word authority. And so he expects that you and I are going to do something with the information that he gives. Now, the challenging thing about that, and I'm going to say this a couple of times, is that when you live in a culture that I would call a culture of relativity, what is relativity? Relativity is when, well, I just say it this way, it's when your truth is as good as my truth. What you personally believe. You notice the common phrase people use today. It's very politically correct. You say, well, I don't know about you, but this is true for me. That's a common thing for people to say. And of course, there are things that you can say that about. There are subjective opinion-based truths that are true about how you might feel about something. But the problem is, is that our culture, the pendulum has swung so far one way that they're making statements like that, not about subjective truths, but about objective truths, things that are objectively true and are true regardless of what your feelings think about it. That's a problem when you live in a relativistic culture. Now, you lay that culture against the backdrop of Jesus Christ who came and taught as one with authority and expected that we would do something with the information, and I'm just going to say to you, we may have a problem then. In fact, the very first public words of Jesus, him beginning his public ministry, you'll notice it says in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, you can see this in your notes, it says, Jesus came into where? Preaching the what? Gospel of God. We're going to hear the good news of who? God. Obviously, this is information that comes from the top. (laughs) And then he goes on and he says in verse 15, saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. Repent and believe the gospel. 
Now, this is an interesting phrase. Apparently, there is a particular shape to time. He says, what has happened until now, he says, has been waiting for something. History has been leaning forward toward something. In fact, the whole of the Old Testament is about this promise. And Jesus says, again, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Therefore, we have to do something. What do we have to do? We have to repent and what? Entrust ourselves to this news, this gospel. And what Jesus is saying now, all of history has been leaning forward toward this moment. And so now what you need to know is those big ticket items that God has promised are now here. Think about that for just a minute. God is now going to make in a new way his justice known, his wisdom known, his love known. And Jesus says the answer to that is because I'm here now. Well, you see, these are things that, in a way, they had never seen before. And so when Jesus says this, he's calling human persons to a response. In other words, what I'm trying to say to you today, listen to me, is that the announcement of the gospel is a summons. It's a summons to all human persons that now is the time to repent. Now is the time to believe or entrust yourself to the gospel. Now... We have to reconcile that even though we live in a day and age of relativism. Relativism that says that your truth is as good as my truth. Because if that, first of all, doesn't make any sense, does it? If your truth is as good as my truth, and those are two opposite truths, well, it can't be true. It just doesn't make any sense. But Jesus says, no, there is a truth that I am proclaiming now, and all of history has been pointing to it, and you need to do something about it. And I want you to understand, guys, listen to me. Jesus doesn't just say that your life is in need of a bit of fine-tuning. He doesn't just say that you and I need a little tweak or a little adjustment. He doesn't look at you and say, well, you're basically good, but, you know, you could do a little bit better. No, no, no. Jesus says your whole lives need to be reoriented around the things of God. Do you understand what he's saying? That's what repentance means. Do you understand what he's saying? He's saying, all your lives, you've been driving through your life the wrong direction. And the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. And now you're about to meet the rush hour of God's purposes that are coming in the other direction. So you must turn around. (laughs) And it's humbling. Because that's the first thing that Jesus says about you and me in his opening sermon. You've got to turn around. It's his opening address. Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God, saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, believe. You and I have a fundamental problem. Whatever we've been doing, whatever you've been doing, you're going in the wrong direction. And so it's in that context, in the context of culture, that Jesus makes some statements to Christians or would-be Christians. You want to hear what those are? Because I think that he expects that this truth that he's proclaiming is going to cause a life change, and so here's what he says about it. Now go to Matthew 5. This is the most famous sermon that he ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount or the Plain, depending on which gospel you read it. Look at what it says. He says then, you, Christian, blessed are you when people do what? 
insult you or and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Notice the, notice the presumption that people will say evil about you because of Jesus Christ. Can I ask you a question? Has that happened to you? Are you living your Christianity in such a way that people look at you and say, oh, I don't like that? And then he says, rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In other words, you and I are to live in such a way, we are to have a position in such a way, you are to have a disposition in such a way that you will be persecuted. So what I want to do today is I just want to use this text in Matthew 5 as well as some others to lay the right foundation and I want to talk to you about laying the right foundation if you're going to live in a relativistic culture. This is the foundation that we have to have if we're going to do that well. And about that, I want to communicate three things. And then at the end, I'm going to give you three ways to act as a reconciler, not a fighter, but as a reconciler. Are you ready? All right, here we go. Write this down. Here's the first thing I'd say. If you're going to be a reconciler and you're going to live in a relativistic culture, here's the first thing. You've got to get clear about where to go for moral authority. Write that down. You've got to get clear about where you go for moral authority. Why? Because in a relativistic culture, it usually goes something more like this. People say today, if I'm going to find myself, well, I just have to look deeply inside myself. I have to go with what I feel. And yet kids are getting this advice now. In the school system and popular American psychology is saying, look deep within yourself to know what the right thing is. Now, here's the problem with that. The problem with that is that in a relativistic culture, your feelings consistently contradict each other. One day you feel one way, and the next day you feel another way. Is that right? One day you think, I need to go to the gym and change my life. The next day you think, I need to cancel that gym membership and stop wasting money. (laughs) One day you think, oh, I'm really in love with this person. The next day you think, I am so sick of this person. Because you know what your feelings are actually like? It is ridiculous that we're telling children just to, how do you feel? Let's make life-changing decisions now based on how you feel, 12-year-old, 13-year-old. You know what your feelings are? Your feelings are a slippery bar of soap. That's what they are. You can't actually get your hands around them. Let me give you an example of how fickle you are and your feelings are. How many of you in here, you're around 20 years old and you can look back at your life. Today, you're in here, you're around 20, you're watching online, maybe you're in Kerman, you're 20. 20 years old, but you look back when you were 15, you look at your 15-year-old self and do you remember what an idiot you were? How many of you remember what an idiot you were at 15 years old? Maybe you're not 20. Now, if you're in here and you're 20 years old, I want you to know that your 30-year-old self is going to look back at you now and say you were an idiot. I also want you to know, if you're a 30-year-old, that your 45-year-old self is going to look back and go, man, when I was 30, I was an idiot. Now, you realize this is true. Isn't it true? And you realize what this means. It means you're always an idiot. (laughs) Always. And so what Jesus is ultimately saying is, trusting yourself is not the way to go. 
Relativism is not the way to go. There's a better way. So notice what Jesus says. In Matthew chapter 5, I didn't read it all to you. I just started it. Let me read a little portion out of it. Verse 17. You can see it in your notes right here. Jesus puts confidence in the words of God as an objective truth. Now notice what Jesus says. Jesus says, do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Now that is a reference to the scriptures or the words of God. Don't think I've come to abolish them. Jesus says, I have not come to abolish them, but to do what? To fulfill them. In other words, Jesus puts a tremendous amount of faith onto the scripture. And by the way, it's worth noting, the scripture he's referencing is the Old Testament. Isn't that interesting? There are people who say today, well, can I trust the Old Testament? Well, I'm telling you, the Son of God did. He said, I trust it. In fact, look at the extreme to which he went to say it's trustworthy. Notice he says, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the what? Law, until everything is accomplished. Now, by the way, what's he saying here? It's important to know that a jot, he's referencing a little jot or the smallest stroke. A jot is like a little comma. It's just a comma. It's a little punctuation point. A tittle is like a serif. What's a serif? A serif is part of a letter, like, like the under part of an E. What is Jesus saying? He doesn't go so far as to say every single letter is true. He says every little part of the letter is true. And he doesn't just go so far as to say every letter and every part of the letter is true, but understand this. He doesn't just say it's true. He says all of it, come on, all of it, every bit of it will be what? Now you see, listen to me guys, you gotta get this. It's one thing to say that the Bible is true, and that's good, but I could say that about a phone book. Technically, I could say that a phone book has all facts in it. This is saying something more. This is saying not only are the words true, but all of the words are going to happen as he said it will. Everything is going to be accomplished. He says, the way in which God is running the universe, there is nothing in this book that will not be accomplished. It is important to live by it. Therefore, notice what he goes on to say. Anyone who breaks the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called what? Great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, guys... What's he saying? He's saying this is objective reality. This is God's truth. This is God's eternal truth. Now, there are lots of arguments out there today by people who want to live immorally and they want to live according to their feelings. So they'll say things like, well, if that's true about God's law, then how come we don't follow the whole law? How come we play football with pigskin? How come we eat bacon? And everybody said, amen, we do. We eat bacon. How, come, how can we do that? Well, guys, you need to understand that Scripture's very clear that there were civil laws and there were ceremonial laws that were for the people of Israel. But there are other laws called moral laws that transfer, not just for the people of Israel, but transfer for all time from the Old Testament to the New Testament. But a moral law is not the same thing as a civil law. And the Bible's clear about that. That's why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount references the moral law. You can't say the moral law doesn't transfer. No, because God has designed human beings to live as moral creatures. 
We are to live a certain way. Now, this whole idea of you've got, you've got to know where to go for moral truth, it leads to this next thing, and I want you to write it down. Write this down. You've also got to understand the, distinct, the distinctiveness of the Christian faith. You've got to understand its distinctiveness, because the Christian faith is like no other faith. That's why it will put us at odds like no other faith will. Notice what Jesus says about our distinctiveness. He says, back at verse 13, you were the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You were the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a what? Instead, they put it on a what? And it gives light to everyone in the house. Notice, there's a reference here that people actually need what? Light. People need that. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Now, what is he saying? There's some distinctiveness of the Christian faith that he's pointing out here. I want you to get this. First of all, one of the things that he's saying is that the Christian life is brighter than normal, or it should be. It's brighter than normal. You're the light of the world. Now, in fact, when you look at this scripture, you're the light of the world, you notice it's important to realize that Jesus is actually talking to two different groups of people. Did you notice that? He's not saying, he's not saying one people has light and the other does not have light. No, both have light. It's just that one who has light puts that light under a what? A bowl or a bushel, yeah. Man, praise God for you King James Version reader right there. A bushel, she said. Yeah, a bowl or a bushel. Hide it under a bushel. No. Okay, all right. He says there's two people. There's one type of person that puts a light on a stand so that it's useful. There's another type of person who puts their light in a bowl. It's not that they don't have light. Now, I'd ask you, what do you do with yours in today's culture? Don't you see that both groups of people have the capacity to distribute light? It's just what they're doing with that light that is the difference. And Jesus says, don't do it. Don't put it under a bowl. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they would see your good deeds. By the way, one of the reasons the church has hurt so many people who are sexually broken like me, and I am sexually broken. I have made profound mistakes and sinned terribly. I've embarrassed myself and my family. But I can tell you that one of the reasons the church has hurt people is not because we're not sexually broken, but it's because we spend a lot of time preaching at people. But notice what he's saying is let your good deeds, let your good deeds shine in such a way that they would glorify God. In other words, we're supposed to be living differently. We're actually supposed to be acting differently. It's not just what we believe or preach but we live distinctly. In fact, let me press this a little bit further about who we're supposed to be. Notice he also says, you are the what else? What else is it? You are the salt of the earth. What is salt? Well, back, back in those days, right, the main thing that salt did was a preservative. Is that right? And so because it was a preservative, you didn't put salt into water because water doesn't go bad. <laughs> Where do you put salt? You put salt into things that are going bad. Yes, like meat. Meat's going bad. Meat falls apart. So much like the light, what this is telling us as Christians is that by the nature of our Christianity, when we see things that are falling apart, it's our job to get in there. When you see somebody who's emotionally falling apart, you get in there. 
When you see somebody who is psychologically falling apart, what do you do? When you see somebody who's spiritually falling apart, when you see a culture or a society breaking down and falling apart, what do you do? Because that's what salt does. You're light. You're salt. The Christian life is brighter. Write this down. Here's the second distinctiveness. The Christian life is supposed to be deeper. It's deeper. Why? Notice Jesus makes this statement in this sermon that we're looking at here. This is a powerful thing. Notice what he says. He says, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you certainly will not enter the kingdom of heaven. My friends, if you read that, it should cause you to sweat. Let's read it again. For I tell you that unless your righteousness, Christian, surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you certainly will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, when Jesus said this, he knew everybody must have been totally shocked because the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they did full-time obedience. I mean, that was their job. You realize the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders, the Pharisees had worked the Bible into something like 635 laws. They had this incredible checklist. So when Jesus says your righteousness has to be more than these guys that have this checklist, the people are looking at Jesus going, how can that be? There's no hope. How could we be more righteous than the teachers of the law? What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying the Christian life has to go deeper. Now, I want you to notice this. This is phenomenal. I want you to think of like a river. I told you they broke it down to 635 laws. Think of a river that's a mile long. It isn't so much that Jesus is saying, hey, your river has to go further that way, but he is saying it better go deeper. (laughs) He is saying it it mustn't be an inch deep. Now you say, well, what do you mean? Well, because notice what he says, verse 20. As soon as he says, verse 20, that your righteousness has to surpass that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you start reading. I'm not going to read it all with you here. In fact, maybe I'll just turn and read a little to you, even though I don't have it in the notes. But the next few verses, he starts answering people's questions that are in their mind. What does it mean that he says that my righteousness has to surpass the Pharisee? Well, he, he says things like, like, now you have heard it said, do not commit murder. But I say, do not even be angry with someone or you're subject to judgment. You notice verse 21, verse 27, verse 31, verse 33, verse 43. He gives these very practical examples. He says, you have heard it said, you must not commit adultery. We looked at that one two weeks ago. But I say to you, anyone who even looks on a person to lust for them has already committed adultery. You see what he's doing here? He's going into details of the moral law of God, and he's saying it's not enough that you do a checklist. Your heart has to be mine. It's not enough that the outside is clean. The inside has to be clean too, and he gives example after example after example. It is a powerful thing. And by the way, he does this with the moral law. Reminds me of Matthew 15 where he quotes the prophet and he says, the problem with these people is that they honor me with their lips, but what? Their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a farce. There are many Christians, by the way, that are just like the people of Israel here. Many Christians. Check, 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 but you know God does not have your heart. 
God wants your heart. See, the Christian life is distinctive. The Christian life is brighter. The Christian life is deeper. And because the Christian life is brighter and deeper, write this down, the Christian life is sweeter. You know why? Because it's real. Because the Bible says in the New Testament there is something that has happened at the center that there's been a regeneration of the Holy Spirit as you've entrusted yourself to the gospel, to Jesus Christ, and that has softened you, and that has sweetened you. It is the distinctiveness. It's brighter because it's deeper, and it's deeper because it's sweeter. There is a change that has gotten on the inside. It's the seed of God's truth. (laughs) Well, I found this to be true when I came to Jesus. Psalm 1 says, for example, of of the person who really loves the Lord, oh, the joys of those who do not follow the advice of the wicked or stand around with sinners or join in with mockers, but they delight in the law of the Lord. But they what? Delight in the law of the Lord. In other words, we don't look at God's law and say, how many of those can I break and still get into heaven? (laughs) No. No. No, we delight in the law of God. We love his law. We want to live as he created humans being to live. He says, they are like trees planted along the riverbank, bearing fruit each season. Their leaves never wither, and they prosper in all they do. Now, if you're relativistic, that is not going to be true. If you're relativistic, you're going to scoff at God's law, and you're going to figure out which ones you can break. How can I change the word of God? Maybe if I read it this way, I can do what I want. How can I make this work for me? Now, here's the third thing in laying the right foundation. Write this down. You've got to come to terms with the cost of following Jesus. You've got to come to terms with that today. Now, if you go to Mark 10, I want to explain this to you just a little bit. If you go to Mark 10, you're going to find Jesus, and he just finished speaking with a young, successful, rich man. And it seems like this man would be the perfect disciple. I'm not going to the scripture yet, but it seems like, it seems like he'd be the perfect disciple. But after talking to Jesus, this man goes away sad because he's not willing to leave some things behind. These are things that have his heart. And if you really read the story, you're kind of sad because it's kind of tragic. You kind of feel bad for this guy. But then notice this scripture. It says Peter comes up, (laughs) the emotionally intelligent person that Peter is, and Peter says, well, Lord, (laughs) we have left everything to follow you. I want for you to notice a couple things that you see right here. Number one, when we talk about the cost of following Jesus, Jesus assumes that we are gonna have to leave things to follow him. You can write that down. There's an assumption there. You will have to leave things behind. That's basic discipleship. Friends, whatever your sexual proclivity is, whatever your bondage is, whether it's sexual or not, Jesus says to be my disciple, there are things you will have to deny yourself. You will have to live differently than you want. Jesus is very upfront. Jesus says, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways and take up the cross and do what? Follow me. To follow Jesus is to deny yourself. Listen, to follow Jesus is to deny yourself, not express yourself. We live in a day when it's all about, well, just express yourself. No, it's to deny yourself. And it will cost you something to do that. 
But I want for you to notice what's powerful about this scripture. And guys, you have to see this. This is significant. He points out, not only are you going to leave, not only are you gonna have to leave something behind, but look at what he says. He assumes that one of the more costly things you're going to leave behind is relationships. Is the familiar or the relationships. Because look at the example that he gives. <laughs> this is powerful. One of the things you're going to have to leave behind is relationships. Look what he says. He says, I tell you the truth, Jesus replied, no one has left home or brothers or sister or mother or father or even children. Think about how much you love your children. Or fields for me or the gospel. God says, for some people, the gospel will involve that kind of a cost. For some people, allegiance to Jesus may mean that you're no longer welcome in your community. But notice, he doesn't just say, for those who make this kind of sacrifice, well, I'm sorry, your life is going to stink. That's not what Jesus says. He doesn't say, but don't worry, one day you'll get into heaven. You're going to suffer in this life, but one day you'll get to heaven, so it's all good. Notice that's not what Jesus says here. Jesus says, however much that person might have to leave behind, look at how it goes on. It says, they will not fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, fields, and with them, persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying it'll be worth it. Even in this life and life in the age to come. Jesus says, there is no one who has left things or people behind for my sake that will not fail to receive as much as a hundred times. What's the third thing then that he's saying here? Write this down. Jesus promises that you will always gain more from him than you have to leave for him. Write that down. You will always gain more from him than you have to leave for him. And did you notice, church, don't, you've got to stay with me here. He casts this in the familial. It's relational language. He's talking about homes. He's talking about brothers and sisters and mothers and children and fields. Notice his promise. It's not a financial promise. He's not saying you're going to be blessed financially. No, he's saying I'm going to bless you relationally. It's a relational promise. He'll be generous to you. So the person who has to lose will receive and yes, you're going to get a side order of persecutions. He says that's bundled in but he promises you relationship and places that you can belong. And these are gonna be communities that you can turn to. Now guys, I need to give you a thought experiment before we're done. And we're gonna hit the last three points. They're gonna go much faster than the first three. But I wanna give you this thought experiment for just a minute, ready? I heard, by the way, one of my heroes, he's a gay British pastor by the name of Sam Albury. He, he lives chaste, he is gay, He is one of my heroes. He's an amazing dude, and he speaks to these issues. I'd encourage you to Google him and look him up. In fact, I listed his book a couple weeks ago. It's on our website where he has several different books. But he said this. I heard this years ago. I'll never forget it. He said, let's imagine a gay person, for example, or a transgender person. Let's imagine they come to Christ. They come to our church. Imagine they come to this church. They come to Jesus. They come to faith. Now, what Jesus is saying here, you understand, is that as a result of coming to faith, 
they should have more family now than they had before. Let's look at it again. He says, they will not fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields. And with them persecutions. What's he saying? He's saying, you should have more community than you had before. You should have more intimacy than you had before. Now, guys, I want you to, here's the thought experiment. You ready? I want you to think about yourself. And I want you to think about our church. I want you to think about your family. I want you to think about your small group. How do you think you would do fulfilling this promise of Jesus with a gay person or transgender person? How do you think our church would do? How do you think that we would provide community for that person that comes in and is open, that that's their brokenness, that that's their struggle? How would you personally answer that call? Now, as I say that, some of you are thinking to yourselves right now, you're like, boy, I don't know. I'm not sure that we actually are that. I don't know if our church, like, what, what, what do we do? Some of you are thinking about your own families and your own life, and it's like, I don't know that I am that, now that you mention it. Or maybe you would say, no, no, I think they would be welcomed here. Maybe you would say, I think they would be genuinely loved and authentically cared for and accepted. You'd say right now, no, we are genuinely a Christian family. We're a dysfunctional family, but we're a family. But here's my question. How are you doing at that, fulfilling the Jesus 100 times promise? How do you do living as a reconciler? Well, you have to get foundational truths right, and I've spent a lot of time covering that, but let me give you three actions right, too. How do we live as reconcilers? You ready? Everybody ready? If churches are going to be places of grace and truth, let me make these three points. Here's the first thing we have to do. We must be able to provide clarity to people. We have to be able to provide clarity. In other words, we all need to be equipped and we need to be able to teach what you've just heard today. We need to be able to teach what Jesus taught. Guys, it is very easy for Christians to duck these issues. There are so many churches that are not speaking to these things. The fact is, though, if we're not going to be taught how to think about these things as Christians, you understand it's not as if you're not going to be taught. You're going to get your teaching from culture around you. Culture is a better, better discipler than the church. I never forget... It, it made me feel sad that I heard about a pastor who was in a kind of celebrity church and the pastor said, we don't ever want to speak on this issue because we will lose our evangelistic appeal to people. That's what he said. Now I'm just going to say to you, don't ever seek a platform for the sake of the gospel that you're not also willing to lose for the sake of the gospel. We must have clarity it is not helpful to leave people uncertain about what the scriptures say, what they actually say about these issues. Listen, you're not doing anybody any favors. That's why, by the way, we're doing a seminar tonight at 6 p.m. where we're going to be talking about culture. 
And by the way, we've already gotten from many of you all sorts of questions uh, that have been submitted to us. In fact, if you'd go to that next slide, you can submit questions going to that QR code if you want to. It's in the notes. It's also up here. But you can submit questions. And by the way, we have questions about the LGBTQ plus stuff. We have questions from people who have had affairs and they're trying to recover, who have been victims of affairs. We have questions from people who are just struggling with sexual perversion of, any, of all types. And they just want freedom. In other words, the question doesn't matter. It doesn't have to be related to this. We're going to have a panel of people there. Folks from New Creation Ministry are coming. But, but guys, we, we want to have clarity about these issues. So we want to speak to them. By the way, New Creation is here this morning. They have books in our lobby. If you can't make the seminar but you want to pick up, one of the books uh, written by Russell Willingham really helped me when I was struggling with my own pornography and masturbation addiction. I don't speak from a place of superiority. I speak from a place of absolute brokenness. I have been given over to sexual sin. But you say, how do we, how do we be, be reconcilers? What's the next step? Well, we have to offer clarification, but here's how we have to act. Write this down. We have to act with compassion. You see, the scripture is very, very clear. Every one of us is a sexual sinner. All of us are. We're all fallen in our sexuality. The gospel really does level the playing field here. It really does. And that, that means that you and I can feel for one another in our sexual brokenness. Listen, you may have a sexual temptation in a way that I don't have, and I may have a sexual temptation in a way that you've never had, but we all wrestle with it. If you say you don't wrestle with it, you're fooling yourself. I told you Sam Alberry is one of my heroes. I'll never forget hearing him speak to a group of pastors in England. One of the pastors looked at him and said, how can you talk to a gay man without being disgusted by him? I was thankful that Sam Alberry looked at him and said, well, sir, it's, it's easy. It's, it's by being more disgusted by your own sin than your brother's sin. That's the answer you were so disgusted with yourself that you look at everybody else and say, oh, that's nothing. I'm right there with you, though. I've always been an idiot. I still am an idiot. You know, there's a parable that Jesus told about a man, a Pharisee. It was a religious person, and he stood and he prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I'm not a sinner like everyone else, for I don't cheat, I don't sin, I don't commit adultery. I'm not given to pornea. I certainly am not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give you a tenth of my income. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, Oh God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, <laughs> returned home justified before God. Let's read this together. For those who exalt themselves will be humble those who humble themselves will be exalted. You know, Paul in the book of 1 Timothy, he actually referred to himself as the chief of all sinners. Did you really know that? Did you know that? He said he's the chief of all sinners. And when you really come to know your own heart, it's really hard to point fingers at people. Because you know how you're compromised in your own heart. Right? Be people of compassion. Guys, listen to me. If this church is full of people of compassion, if you're a person of compassion, others will feel safe confessing their sin to you. Don't you see? Don't you see? 
The gospel shows you that every part of your life is tainted by sin. There is no area of your life that you can't say, Jesus, I need your help. If I could put it this way, no one is straight. No one is straight. Because what does it mean to be righteous? Righteousness is about being straight, being right. And the Bible says none of us are straight. One of the problems with us as Christians, if I could just speak or meddle in your life, is that we hear the scripture that the Holy Spirit has come to convict of sin, and we go, oh, he sure does. I'm convicted about everybody else's sin. (laughs) God says no. It's when you're convicted about your own sin that you become more compassionate. And then where should that lead you? No matter what your background is. It leads you to number three, if you just write this down. We have to be people that provide community. You know the picture that Jesus gives? I I read it to you in Mark chapter 10. It's so powerful, it's so unique. Because guys, do you understand? There is a sense in which Jesus says, it's up to us to fulfill it. In other words, we're not meant to read these words of Jesus. Guys, you're not meant to read the words of Jesus right there and say, oh, well, that's a nice thing Jesus said. (laughs) That's great. No, you're meant to read it and think, oh no, wait a minute. Jesus is talking about my house. Jesus is talking about my fields. Jesus is talking about my land. Maybe you're supposed to be the mother or the brother or the father or the child to that person, the family that you're supposed to be. Maybe you're supposed to be the blessing of the disciple who has truly followed Jesus and has left their community. Will you be that? That's what it means to be a reconciler. I pray, pastor of this church, that we are that. I pray that we exemplify that. Light, soul, love, care for people. Not judgment, identification, but saying, Lord, we want to be wholly devoted to you together. Let's pray. Father, I do pray for every man and woman here. Help us, Lord, to be reconcilers. Help us to be the people, the men, the women that you've called us to be. Jesus, we turn our lives over to you. Would you pray this prayer with with me? Just pray it out loud. Jesus, I give my life to you. I entrust myself to the gospel. I believe it, I yield to it, I yield to you. You are Lord, come into my life, forgive me of my sin, cleanse me, make me new, like only you can. I love you, Jesus. In Jesus' name.